0: the style of fighting in these days, the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons really fought uh, the same kind of way, mostly on foot. They were not cavalrymen. They rode to battle, but they did not ride in battle. Uh, The standard formation was a shield wall, which was basically a big long line of guys with their shields up, standing behind it, and you just faced another shield wall, and you basically didn't even charge it. You just walked up to it and started pushing and tried to hack over the top of it into the guy behind it. And uh, that was the way that they fought. The Normans, although they were descendants of Vikings, they had a different tradition. They were more horsemen. They had been on the continent, the southern part of the continent there, where France, where uh, Attila the Hun had come over. The horse soldiers off the east had been over there and, you know, sort of taught Western Europe horse fighting. And King Charlemagne, he had a a strong cavalry tradition because he formed that first Holy Roman Empire and needed to get on horseback to get to the far corners of it to do his fighting to defend his frontiers.
1: Hi, everyone. This is A.J. Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today, I am extremely excited to have on the show Don Hallway for his new book, Battle for the Island Kingdom, England's Destiny 1000-1066. Don is an author, illustrator, and historian. His critically acclaimed first book, The Last Viking, is a gripping history of King Harold Hardrada. He has published articles in History Magazine, Military Heritage, Renaissance Magazine, and many others. Don, how are you doing today?
0: I am well. How are you?
1: I'm excellent. Um, so glad to have a, you on the show. Uh, oh, thanks this, for
0: asking me. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and this book is right at my alley. So, um, <laughs> very excited to, to talk about it. I do want to point out first, though, um, for everybody who's picked up a copy of this book and has not opened up to Don's bio, um it says don you are a classic rapier fencer i am what got you into that because i think this is a first for the war books podcast
0: ah well you know i i have to say when i was a kid i saw the three musketeers movies the two from it was 73 and 74 i think they filmed them both at the same time but released them separately and these uh one of my uh, fencing instructors said that's one of the few three musketeers movies where it actually looks like the guys are trying to kill each other instead of just <laughs> dancing. And, uh, I was just so fascinated with that and never knew where to go to learn more about it. Always wanted to try it. And, uh, years ago, probably 10, 15 years ago now, I started, um, modern fencing with a foil, you know, like a radio antenna kind of. Stuff. Well,
1: okay. And, I'm glad you explained that because I, I actually know nothing about fencing. or Yeah. Or... Yeah.
0: Well, and I did that for a couple of years. Uh, but then, a a rapier fencer a rapier is the kind of sword that the musketeers use it's a lot longer a lot heavier a lot stiffer uh we had a interest in that is is gaining ground here lately in in the west and uh we had an instructor come in and uh man that that was actually what i was gravitating towards the whole time i mean the foil is cool but it's it's very stylized uh you you get out because you just you get a little tap that okay in real life it wouldn't hurt you but you sure. lose the point whereas if you get hit with a rapier you get hit
1: i don't imagine there were there was any rapier fencing going on in the viking era which you write about the from no uh, there anything. was not
0: toward, uh, the rapier evolved uh, the rapier was actually more of a civilian weapon in this in the 17th century when you saw them there were still heavier swords on the battlefield but the rapier was a civilian weapon wasn't in okay. You didn't figure you were going to have to go through somebody's armor. This was if you sure. bumped into a guy in a bar and you got into a scrap. You took him outside and you went at it.
1: Right. Wow. Well, um, yeah, maybe the the Viking equivalent is is taking some battle axes. Or... <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> well, I haven't uh, found
0: an instructor in the battle axe fighting uh, yeah. yet. <laughs>
1: uh, well, uh, well, John. One of the the questions that I like to I like authors to start out by by answering for the show is uh, if, uh, first in your own words can you just tell the audience what is your book about
0: well a lot of uh, there's a lot of books been written about uh, 1066 the year of three battles uh when uh, the vikings and the normans uh invaded england and the normans actually spoiler alert the like, the normans conquered england in 1066 but there aren't that many books written about uh the decades leading up to that when the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons who lived in England at that time went back and forth and back and forth for 60 years, uh, just constant warfare uh, and you know, to try and figure out who was going to run the place. And the Vikings got a hold of it for a little while, and then the Anglo-Saxons took it back over again, and all this happened before the, the Normans ever showed up on the scene. And meanwhile, Duke William of Normandy he was uh, living a real vagabond's existence. I mean, he was the odds against him even living to adulthood were were extremely high against it, and uh, he led a pretty exciting lifestyle to the point where he conquered a dukedom and then turned around and conquered a kingdom. And I just thought, boy, nobody ever talks about this. I mean, the first article I ever wrote back in the '90s was about the Battle of Hastings, and uh, at that point, I knew very little about what had happened before that nobody ever talks about that.
1: <laughs> That's so interesting because, you know, I, I like to keep my thumb on the pulse of, um, of war books that are, are coming out or, or books about periods of mm-hmm. conflict, like you've written and yours is actually the first that I've had on the show that deals with like uh, medieval or like European, I don't know if you would call this, I guess we're on the cusp of like medieval times here, but, mm-hmm. um, there aren't I find there aren't a lot of books being written about not just this period in time, but this particular particular era in European history. Um why do you why do you think that is?
0: Well, I think it's uh I think it's becoming more popular because of that television show Vikings and Vikings Valhalla. I think yeah. it is becoming more Which popular. we were talking
1: about before we yeah. started yeah. recording. Think, yeah.
0: So I think it's a lot more popular now than it was even uh, I don't know, ten, ten, fifteen years ago. Um yeah. but I think uh, if I'm to go out on a limb a little bit, uh, it's a bigger world market now. And maybe England isn't as central to uh, Western history or not yeah. seem to be as central to Western history as it was, you know, in Victorian times during the, sure. you know, Victoria's empire when England was, you know, the world's great superpower. And then after World War One when they sort of bled themselves white and uh, After World War II, when they lost all their colonies, I think a lot of the worldwide market said, you know, not everything has to be about England or America, you know, and maybe they weren't so much interested in English history at that point.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's interesting that you, you bring that up because there are, there is fiction that I feel like it's written about for this time a lot. Um, A book that comes to my mind that was written a couple of years ago, is actually about this period that you talk about in your book, it's a book by an author named Ken Follett and, oh, uh, I know
0: Ken Follett. Yeah,
1: yeah, he wrote a book called "The Evening in the Morning," and it—I think oh, it okay. starts in the year um, 999 in England. And so, oh, okay, I already knew a little but, bit about Ethelred the Unready.
0: Series, uh, a couple of books out. He has that one about the building of a, a cathedral. I think yep, that might uh, have pillars, been pillars of a the series. Air. Yeah, and yeah. There, was, there was another one takes place in the same place. Uh, but like a hundred years after or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he's got, he's,
1: his whole series is about um, this this one town in medieval England. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, right. and he actually, he just came out with a, a new book, which I have up on my bookshelf, but <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't read yet, um, which takes place not in medieval times, but in the 1700s. Anyway, uh, what I'm uh, getting at is um, for for some reason it's been hard to find nonfiction books that uh, that cover this, this period of time.
0: So glad you so wrote. You're saying maybe I can like capture the entire market. I for think that you got the market. You're there. done. <laughs> 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 well, um, I guess
1: you know. The so your book is is Battle for the Island Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, is there? You know, we we you you talked briefly about 1066, very famous, um, you know, Battle of Hastings. And that gets talked about a lot. This period right before um, William the Conqueror comes to England—is there a like a, a war that we can say is going on? Would we call it the Viking invasions? How do we kind of categorize this period in history?
0: Well, I pick it up in uh, at the very turn of the millennium, uh, the year one thousand, uh, and at that point, the Vikings have been the the Anglo Saxons have won, and the Vikings. Now there are still a lot of Danes living in. Uh, England, but they're English subjects. The the Viking kings have been pushed out. Uh the Dane Law doesn't exist anymore, which was the Danish half of England when the Vikings ruled it. But eventually the Anglo Saxons pushed them out. Now there's still a lot of Danes in there and uh in the north of England in particular where the Dane law used to be uh they're not Vikings anymore but they're practically Vikings. I mean they they have they have s- still that mindset and everything. And, uh, that's actually where I start the book is, uh, with the St. Price's Day massacre, uh, when, uh, King Ethelred decided that, you know, he, we're just going to get, he had been fighting Vikings off and on for, he had a long reign, I guess for probably 10 years, 15 years at this point and decided, uh, we were just going to eradicate the Danes in England. And, uh, if you, when you read the book, some of the accounts are pretty violent. I mean, it, makes you think of what's going on in the middle East right now. It was, uh, no, nothing nice about it. It was, it was a slaughter. And I mean, they didn't just kill people. They killed them with extreme prejudice uh, as they use the term.
1: Yeah. And that was actually one of my questions I was going to ask you is, um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of different periods of time that I talk about on this show. This one seems particularly violent. Um, would, how would you how would you categorize the violence? Um, I mean, what's the average life expectancy of just like your normal Anglo-Saxon in this time? And and what are well, people? How do people feel about the, violence? even
0: the kings who uh, you know had great diets, uh, you know, good living conditions? Uh, Harold Hadrada only made it to like fifty. Uh, and Edward the Confessor, I believe, made it to sixty, but uh, you know the vast majority of people never made it half that far. I mean, there was just constant disease. I make I make a point of the in the book of they even had a term for it called elf shot, which was you know they envisioned it as a, an invisible elf shot you with an arrow. It just stood for death by random chance. I mean, there was so much disease. If you got a wound and it got infected, you were as good as dead. Uh, the life expectancy was not good.
1: Yeah. Well, um, take us on a tour of, we'll we'll start in the year 1000. So you had just mentioned a little bit about, so the Viking, the relationship between the Vikings and England um, is, is they, previous to the year 1000, they had invaded England, conquered it, but were pushed out by, uh, I believe Alfred, King Alfred, Alfred the Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Alfred
0: pushed them back. He didn't. He wasn't ultimately there when they left, but uh, he got right. it all started. He basically the Anglo Saxons' problems were they hated each other, Mercia and Wessex. They had these different areas, and they didn't like each other any more than they liked the Vikings. It was Alfred that really got them together and said, "Look, set your differences aside. We're Anglo Saxons. If you gotta hate somebody." hate the Danes and let's push sure. them out. So he was the one who sort of got that started. And that was, that was before your book t- takes right.
1: place. And so yeah. your book is really kind of the second, the second wave of right. um, Viking invasions. So I'm curious if just, if we're thinking about the year 1000, if you could just take us on maybe a, a tour uh, of, of England and what was going, sure. or not England, I'm sorry, of Europe and what was going on in Europe, particularly uh, in England northern france and denmark where a lot of the story takes place politically what's going on Uh, who is fighting who um what what's what's the story in europe at this point in history
0: well it all starts out there are three separate kingdoms uh england all those all the Mercia and wessex those are all earldoms kind of like uh states in america or i don't know is it counties in england uh but they're all united england is one kingdom over in uh in Normandy Normandy is not France it's just this little slice uh, if you look at the D-Day beaches for people who are familiar with uh uh World War II that's Normandy i mean that's all there is of it and that is just one piece in a bunch of different uh countries that exist then even France is not that big of a country France itself is only basically centered around Paris at this point and then when you get up to Denmark uh Denmark and Norway have been on and off parts of a Viking kingdom up there. At one point, the, the Danes were conquering the Norwegians, and another point, the Norwegians were conquering the Danes. And the, the great age of uh, the Vikings, which has been going on since the 700s, is really coming to a close. Uh, the Vikings are actually doing more fighting uh, against each other, and that only intensifies as the story, as the decades go along. So everybody at the beginning of the story is, uh, uh, you know, minding their own business. But uh, the Vikings have been coming over and sort of resuming raiding on England. You have the king's fine fork beard, uh, and he is trying to step up the raids, bring in some more money to, uh, to, his, uh, to Denmark. And part of one of his allies is Normandy. He's been stealing stuff in England, taking it across the Channel, and his dragon ship's and selling it in Norm- uh, Normandy. Uh, Duke William hasn't been born yet. King Ethelred in England, he says, well, you know, we cannot take these Vikings. They are defeating us every time they come over here. We just can't stand against them. But I can cut off their markets over here in Normandy. I'm going to teach those dirty Normans a lesson, and they are not going to be taking any more Viking goods. So he launches a little raid um, into Normandy, the purpose—I don't know if it was just to punish uh, the Normans. Uh, there was some. Some of the writers then said that the guys were supposed to actually capture the Duke of Normandy at that point, but that seems a little far-fetched to me. I think they were just over there to basically be Vikings themselves against Normandy. Well, the Normans—the Normans were ex-Vikings. They were descendants of Vikings. And pretty much dealt the Anglo-Saxons a, a, a big defeat right there at, at the beginning. And that's actually the first incident in the book. And I say that the the war between England and France, which really went on for like 800 years, if you count the Hundred Years' War and Napoleonic Wars, to me, to my mind, really got started right there around the year 1001-1002.
1: Yeah. Isn't that so interesting that, I mean, we're going to skip ahead, way ahead here, but <laughs> England and France had been at war for like 800 years and then World War One <laughs> comes around and all of a sudden they're yeah. on the same side. I always find that just completely fascinating.
0: Well, it's because they had a new common enemy in Germany sure. it's, uh, that tipped the balance of power. <laughs> yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, coming back to the year 1000, um, what's warfare like at, at this time in history? Um, Are there are there big armies fighting each other? What kinds of weapons are being used? What are some of the tactics? What's what's war like?
0: You don't see too many mercenary armies. Uh, Nobody really has a standing army. It's more or less like uh, these guys are all farmers for the most part of the year until the king sends the word around. We're going to go raiding or we're being raided. Grab your swords and join me and we're going to, you know, have our have a war here or whatever. Uh, but, so not professional soldiers? No, not prof- Well, each one of, each one of the kings, the, the English kings had, and the Vikings, had their housecarls, which was their household guard. And those guys were paid soldiers. Uh, they were you know, professional soldiers, but there weren't that many of them. They were kind of the elite. Uh, the, the style of fighting in these days, the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons really fought uh, the same kind of way, mostly on foot. They were not cavalrymen. They rode to battle, but they did not ride in battle. Uh, The standard formation was a shield wall, which was basically a big long line of guys with their shields up standing behind it. And you just faced another shield wall and you basically didn't even charge it. You just walked up to it and started pushing and tried to hack over the top of it into the guy behind it. And uh, that was the way that they fought. The Normans, although they were descendants of Vikings, they had a different tradition. They were more horsemen. They had been on the continent, the southern part of the continent there, where France, where uh, Attila the Hun had come over. The horse soldiers off the east had been over there and, you know, sort of taught Western Europe horse fighting. And King Charlemagne, he he had a strong cavalry tradition because he formed that first Holy Roman Empire and needed to get on horseback to get to the far corners of it to do his fighting to defend his frontiers. So they kind of passed that on to the Normans. So the Normans had a different fighting style than either the Vikings or the Anglo-Saxons.
1: Now, do you think, I mean, fast forwarding up to 1066, because obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, the Normans conquer uh, England. Do you think that gave them a pretty significant advantage over uh, the... The Vikings and the English?
0: Yeah, I, when you look at the Battle of Hastings, you look at that as a battle of cavalry against uh, against the shield wall. But the shield wall was impervious to cavalry if you held it, if you stayed in formation, because you had all these shields and spears sticking out between them, and horses will not throw themselves on a hedge of spears. They're smart enough to do that. Uh, they'll hit the brakes, and the, the guys in the shield wall, what they're hoping for, their ideal... Solution is for the guy on the horse to fly over its neck and land in front of them where they can kill him. So a shield wall, if it remains intact, can hold off cavalry. Actually, uh, King Harold Godwinson found that out earlier in 1066 when he fought the Vikings at Stamford Bridge because they had a shield wall, and he, having been uh, spent some time in Normandy by this time, was trying out cavalry tactics, and his, his cavalry could not break through the shield wall until the viking shield wall broke then they were then they were able yeah. to get through
1: well let's talk about some of the uh, the leaders and the figures in your story um let's start with the anglo-saxons mm-hmm. and ethelred the unready uh, right. as he is known mm-hmm. first off um why is why does he have the nickname the unready and then if you just yeah. talk about him as a leader what he was like his personality um,
0: but... well the uh he's he's called the Unready because in in old English uh his name the nickname was Unread, but that doesn't actually mean unready it means uh ill advised because his name Ethelred actually means well advised so the nickname was kind of applied to him because he was a, a pretty disastrous king so everybody called him Unready the ill Unred the ill advised but I don't think anybody called him that to his face and I don't. I'm not sure that they even called him that while he was living. I think that name was kind of applied to him later on after he was gone. Well,
1: right. what 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 was he like as a person? What was his personality? Was he, um, I don't know, a particularly vicious man? Was he liked by the public? Um, what what kind of defines his his style?
0: I don't think he was uh, not. I think he was well liked. And I don't think he was even really that bad of a king. I mean, most of the kings in that era could not stand against the Vikings. The Vikings the Vikings tried to avoid pitch battles in the first place. They were raiders their The secret to their success was they never got caught in a major battle. When they did get caught, a lot of the times they got beat. Their thing was to appear out of nowhere, conquer, conquer, conquer before the uh the enemy's uh, armies could converge on them and get the heck out of there on their dragon boats. And nobody had found a solution to this. I mean, they had been all down through France. They went over through Russia. Nobody could stand against this technique of theirs. They used those shallow draft boats of theirs to go so far upriver that nobody would have expected them to turn up. So I don't think Ethelred can really be uh, blamed as a bad king for not being able to defeat the Vikings. I think he can be blamed because... He when they say uh unraid ill advised he was ill advised a lot of the a lot of the people who were advising him were treacherous and turned their backs a lot of them joined the vikings for a while and uh then when that happened he was very heavy handed in his punishment and made enemies that way and i think by the end of his reign very few people did like him uh he just wasn't trustable
1: yeah and what really kind of defines his um or maybe his fatal flaw is that his solution to getting the Vikings to stop invading England is to pay them. Um <laughs> to pay them what's called the, the Dane Guild.
0: Right, right.
1: And that at first that sounds like a good solution if you've got money. It sounds like a good solution rather than having these terrible Viking warriors burn all of your towns to the ground mm-hmm. and you know, pillage and kill. But then the Vikings just keep coming back. They keep coming back for more.
0: <laughs> it never ends. So he creates a
1: monster. Do you pay and, a
0: blackmailer. He's just going to keep coming back. Yeah.
1: Well, will talk about like, I guess talk, talk about that journey and talk about the problems that that caused and how that, that led to, uh, Ethelred's final years.
0: Well, uh, What really got it going was that St. Bryce's Day massacre that I talked about Uh, when they wiped out the Danes. They made the mistake of making a particular point of uh, killing um, King Svein Forkbeard's sister. She was living in England at the time, and they dragged her out, killed her husband and their son in front of her, and then beheaded her. And when word of this got back to uh, Denmark and King Svein now now it's beyond just getting money now it's now it's a blood feud you know somebody has to die for this and he was not i mean he was still his men were going to demand to have you know money for doing this but he was in it just for the destruction at this point he was there to exact vengeance for this death and that's basically the history of england for like the next 10 or 15 years Is fine just coming over and just widespread murder and pillage uh and ethelred being basically powerless against it that's pretty much the early decades of the of the of the century
1: well let's let's shift a little bit to the leadership of the vikings um well first so are would would you say the danes and the vikings are those the same people i know they didn't call themselves
0: danes the danes and norwegians and even the swedes are what we think of as vikings now the swedes mostly went uh east into russia but the Norwegians and the Danes, in various different periods, were coming over uh, into to England. They they moved west and conquered uh, England.
1: And they did not call themselves the Vikings, correct? That was a later. Yeah,
0: the Viking uh, Viking was more of a verb than a noun. You went okay. Viking. It was it was a term that meant raiding. But I imagine the people that uh, they raided heard that word enough that <laughs> that's what sure. they started calling. It. <laughs> in
1: And Viking culture was was basically. Rating was was that underpinned society, right. correct? That was right. A huge I mean, part. as I
0: said, most of these guys, most of the Vikings were farmers for most of the time. But a couple of times a year, you know, we're running a little low, we could use some money. And let's all hop in our dragon ships and go over to England and you know, steal some money and do that a couple of times a year. Uh, they very rarely stayed over the winter after the Dane Wall, they didn't stay too much over the winter. Uh, they would come over and raid and go back. Now, again, as the decades go on, that kind of changes.
1: Well, talk about the leadership for uh, the Danes uh, during mm-hmm. this period you write about in your book.
0: Well, it's fine, Forkbeard, He's, uh, after about 10 or 15 years of this, he has pummeled the English into so much submission that he is starting to think, you know, I can re- resurrect the Dane law again. And uh, he already has Denmark and Norway. He's the ruler of both at this point. And if he adds England to this, that's that's a uh, uh, that's that's what's called the North Sea Empire. Uh, two two different sides of the North Sea up there, and he's gonna he can be the king of all that. So that becomes his goal. He's uh, he wants to kill Ethered, but he's perfectly happy to just run him out of the country and take over England at that point. Um, he has a son. Uh, King Her- he has a son Harold and a son Knut, and he was going to set them both up as kings on opposite sides of the north sea so that's that's his goal as time goes by, and he sees that he can actually subdue the English again,
1: yeah, and um eventually the vikings they they do um subdue the English mm-hmm. and the Vikings are i believe they co rule uh the island is that correct
0: well uh They get to that point eventually, but it's not like they just immediately agreed on that. Svein actually did achieve his North Sea Empire and was ruler of Norway, Denmark, and England, but only for a couple of weeks he died, uh, probably of a stroke or maybe a fall of his horse, uh, just a couple of weeks into it. And according to the Viking accounts, he bequeathed England to his son Canute. And gave uh, Norway and Denmark to his other son, Harold, to rule over there. So, right away, the North Sea Empire is sort of falling to pieces again, uh, as most empires do when you divide it up among the sons of the emperor. You know, things start going to pieces. So, so Knut uh, is not—he's at this point—he's still basically a teenager. His, uh, according to which count you account you go by, his age can be like early twenties down to like ten. So I assume that he's somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, but he is not anywhere near the battle commander that his father is. And King Ethelred, who has been run off the island and gone over to Normandy, he sees this and comes back to England and runs Knut off, off, of, uh, off of England and takes back the kingdom. It, it, again, it goes back and forth sure. and back and forth. Canute goes over to Norway, gathers up his troops, comes back to England, the war resumes again, and for decades you have these armies just marching back and forth over England and killing who's ever there on the assumption that they were aiding the other side when the other side was in charge. It just had to be murder on the people that were there. I mean, you hear accounts of Ethelred riding north to fight Canute after Canute had tried to reclaim the north and just, take Ethelred just taking it out on the citizens up there and just slaughtering them like the Vikings would have done you you have to wonder how anybody survived it and uh so he ultimately did chase Canute off the island again well, and go
1: ahead well I was gonna ask what kind of what kind of ruler is Canute I mean he is obviously a, a Viking um right is he is he particularly vicious uh, does uh, do...
0: yeah I think as a boy he was he was fairly vicious they said when he had taken some English hostages down to sandwich which is on the eastern coast and is uh basically the last it's one of the nearest points to the continent narrowest points of the english channel and he took his hostages rather than take them across the channel and demand ransom for them he butchered them right there on the beach castrated some of them cut the noses off of them and then left them go and uh you know that I, that doesn't count as a nice king in my book so.
1: <laughs> well if you're let's say you're um and the the vikings were uh London was their their biggest city mm-hmm. um so let's say you were just like your your normal londoner uh during this time period under the the rule of canute mm-hmm. what would what would kind of define your existence would you be pretty afraid of the people in power would you um you know what what's what do you think defines living under his rule
0: under athelred's or Canutes? canute well as he grew older uh after King Ethelred died, uh, Knut ended up fighting with Ethelred's son Edmund Ironside, and they are the ones who ultimately decided. You know, as I said, after going back and forth and slaughtering each other's people, it's like it's pointless to go on. And they sort of came to an agreement, well, as you said, to co-rule. Basically, Edmund was going to rule everything south of the Thames and in the Wessex, and Knut was going to rule everything north of there. So, as a Londoner, you would have been under Canute But uh, across London Bridge, I guess you would have been under Edmund Ironside. Now, that agreement didn't last very long either because uh, Edmund was killed, assassinated a couple of, again, a couple of weeks after this agreement was made. And it's pretty certain that this was done on Canute's orders, that Canute decided, you know, where he had basically bled, you know, fought himself to a draw and uh, couldn't keep, couldn't maintain the fighting. And decided we're gonna declare peace with this, peace with Edmund, and then we'll kill him after that. <laughs> and that's pretty much what they did. I mean, it was treacherous times. Yeah. But as time went on, now at that point, Canute is the king. He's the uncontested king of England. And once he had nobody to fight, I think he did turn into a he did did turn into a good king. Uh, he had to turn his uh, turn his fighting strategy outside he tried to resurrect the uh, North sea empire and actually did resurrect it again after a few years. And he was, uh, I think a very beneficial King to his, uh, he felt the same as the, uh, about the Anglo-Saxons as he did about the Danes, tried to treat them both equally.
1: Well, one of the, we haven't talked about the Normans yet, um, mm-hmm. um who have just kind of been biding their time, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> Talk about what's going on in Normandy, um, the leadership and and what their goal is.
0: Well, at this point, uh, you have a Duke of Normandy. You have uh, Duke Robert, uh, who has achieved the position again, they think, by assassinating his own brother, uh, his brother and all his men all dropped dead at a meal. They think they were probably poisoned. Uh, So Duke Robert is in charge of Normandy, which, again, is just this little slice along the French coast over there. Robert has an illegitimate bastard son, William, uh, who is, um, uh, you know, I you say bastard, but that was not a that was not a derogatory term in those days. It was just the term that said he's illegitimate. I didn't marry his mother, but I acknowledge him as my son. So it wasn't uh, wasn't anything that anybody looked down on him about. But when William was about eight years old, uh, Robert suddenly was. Uh, was struck by religion. I don't know if his conscience got the best of him for killing his brother or for basically beating Normandy into submission because they had all those rebellious barons who were, you know, trying to rise up against him. And he was very heavy handed in bringing all of them in line. So he decided he was going to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And all the barons said, well, the minute you leave Normandy, here's little William (laughs) <laughs> We're going to fall right back into anarchy again. And he's Duke Robert was like, No, William, he's eight, but you know, we'll, we'll appoint a guardian and everything will be fine. See ya. So he goes over to Jerusalem and never comes back, falls sick and dies along the way on the return. And immediately, everything that they predicted happens. The barons all go their own way. They're all raising uh, raising castles or, in this time period, not so much stone. It's more wood-like fortresses or something like that. And uh, Normandy falls into anarchy. And basically, the name of the game, because William is the designated duke, even at the age of eight, anybody who has control of William, has him in hand, is effectively running or has claim to the dukedom and so you have basically all these barons who are distantly related they're all basically cousins to each other but they're all fighting this anarchic war trying to get control of william who is basically on the run for much of his uh much of his life a lot of his closest advisors are assassinated along the way and he has a he has a very violent childhood
1: yeah. Well, I mean, that's probably the, the theme of most violence and killing and treachery is uh, right. it, it runs deep in this book. Um, what's so what is the when when do the Normans decide uh, we want England? That When do they decide that that is where their destiny lies?
0: Well, part of the part of it was uh, Duke Robert before he departed. Uh, when Ethelred, you recall, I said Ethelred had been driven out of England. He and his family were living in Normandy because Ethelred's wife Emma was a Norman uh, Duchess before she became Queen of England. She was actually Robert's sister. So he took his sons, uh, Edward and Alfred, took them over to Normandy, and when he went back to England, although this doesn't, it's not, Edward and Alfred remained in uh, Normandy for the long term. There was some crossing back and forth. But Robert had charge of both Edward and Alfred. And when Canute had taken over England, uh, Robert started thinking, well, you know, I have the actual heir to the Anglo-Saxon king right here with me, uh, Edward. And he sent a letter over to Canute and said, "Uh, are you going to uh, give up this kingdom and give it back to its rightful king? And Canute said, (laughs) come take it. (laughs) So Robert actually did attempt to do that. But, uh, and the the Normans were descendants of Vikings, but they were not sailors. Uh, their fleet got completely blown off course and uh, got turned back and Robert gave up the effort. So there was an attempted invasion of England. This was like 1035, I believe. Uh, but they didn't they didn't persist in it. And Edward was sort of a king without a kingdom.
1: Well, talk about some of the more important battles from, I mean, obviously there's at the very end, the battle of Hastings, but from 1000 to 1066, what are the, some of the more important battles that we should know about?
0: Uh, let me see. Uh, well, the battles between, uh, between Edmund and, uh, between Edmund Canute, they would, they would be some of the more important ones, but none of them really ever decided anything. Uh, the guys basically just slaughtered each other every time that every time they came close to a battle there was nothing really decided so i can't really point to one of them and say that was the one that changed everything because they just fought until they got to a draw and decided we don't want to do this anymore it's costing us both too many too many men and uh they decided we'll just declare a peace so i can't really point to any of the battles that say that really made a difference
1: well was there a point where um When something occurred that that William the Conqueror is like, oh, now is the time for for me to get this invasion going and and for us to. take. Well, uh,
0: yeah, as I say, he had a violent childhood, but eventually that just that just turned him into that turned him into a hardened soldier. I mean, by the time he was in his 20s and 30s, he was not somebody you wanted to mess with. He did not. He took no prisoners when he had to. Uh, at, at one at one siege, they made fun of him. The guys behind the walls made fun of him for being a bastard. And when he uh, took their uh, took prisoners, he cut their arms or their hands and feet off, and loaded the hands and feet into a catapult and shot it into the city, God. and said, "That's what's going to happen to the rest of you if you don't surrender right now." So yeah. these guys did not; they were not playing around. But uh, what really happened was uh, King Edward the Confessor. Uh, had ultimately returned to England uh, be- at the invitation of one of Canute's sons after Canute died. Uh, his son, Hartha Canute, uh, invited, so this would be his half-brother, Edward, because Canute uh, had remarried uh, to Emma. Actually, the, the, the soap opera is just ongoing. Canute had married Ethelred's old queen. So you have these half-brothers here. And Canute, uh, the Viking half brother, invited Edward, the English half brother, over to England as a co-king. And as luck would have it, Canute died shortly after that. Whether he was assassinated or not, nobody knows. Uh, seems mighty coincidental, in my opinion. But Edward ended up ruling the king or ruling the kingdom. Uh, became known as Edward the Confessor. the The crux of the matter is he did not have an heir, uh, so he. Have being half Norman on his mother's side, has invites uh Duke William, who has now conquered his duke and in, dukedom, invites him over to England and says, I would like you to have this kingdom after I die. I don't have any sons, I would like you to have it. Uh, if you believe the Norman accounts, that was that was William's claim to the kingdom. If you believe the English accounts, it never happened. William goes back, this is in the 1050s. William goes back to Normandy and uh Pretty much, that's all forgotten. Now, when Edmund or Edward dies in ten sixty six, the very first week of ten sixty six, he reneges on that promise and gives it to gives the kingdom to Harold Godwinson. He is now the second most powerful man in the kingdom. He's uh, the Earl of Wessex. They call him Subregulus, the Under King, and Duke Sanglorum. They call him Duke of the English, and uh, Edward. Uh, says, you know, I'm dying, I want you to have the kingdom, just completely makes it makes a, a whole different offer to uh, Harold Godwinson, which Harold, hearing this from the king, accepts. Duke, Norm, Duke William of Normandy hears this and says, wait a minute, I've been promised this kingdom, you are not the rightful king, and Harold says, well, no, I'm the rightful king, <laughs> you're over there, tough luck, that's, uh, you know, that's your problem. You think you can take it? come take it. And uh, that, that's where William sees this as a mortal insult. Now he's been uh, shamed in front of his men, and he's going to do what none of the Normans were able to do, which is build a fleet and sail over to England and, and conquer.
1: So uh, it's the original Game of Thrones uh, in this time period.
0: <laughs> I think that story was based on the War of the Roses, I think, was if it? I remember right.
1: Well, what, do you, what surprised you most in your research about this time period?
0: uh just how treacherous everyone was i mean everyone was uh, you know just a backstabber you could not uh you could make whatever agreement you wanted to make with somebody and man the minute was it was to their advantage to to double back on that they did i mean there is so much betrayal throughout this book that i don't know how anybody I don't know how anybody trusted anybody else. I don't. I don't know how you did it. You just basically had to have enough power on your side that no one would defy you. That was. That was the whole goal.
1: Now, would you say that we obviously these days we think of the Vikings as being um, pretty brutal, but it sounds like the Normans and the Anglo Saxons were in a lot of ways just as brutal. Would you say that that's the case?
0: I would say that. I mean, everybody, nobody took prisoners in those days. I mean, everybody was evil uh i mentioned about uh king before they became kings edward and his brother alfred were actually uh they thought invited over to england to uh, mount a rebellion and it turned out to be a trap and a lot of people blame earl godwin uh for uh for taking this over earl godwin who was uh who was a, a powerful earl at that point Uh, took charge of of Prince Alfred when he came over and again betrayed him, slaughtered them and and his men in just the most horrible fashion. I mean, there was scalping and dismemberment. They think they've actually found the skeletons of these guys who were killed, and Alfred himself was uh, blinded so cruelly that they think they stuck the knife too far into him and uh, punctured his brain. And that didn't kill him. The story is, I don't know how, I don't know how hardcore your audience is. The story is that finally to kill him, they cut him open, took his intestines out and nailed them to a post and then took white hot irons to a blind guy and drove him around the post until his guts were drawn out of him. That's, (laughs) you know, it's imaginative. Give them points for imagination, right?
1: Wow. Well, what do you think, like, even like the biggest enthusiast of, of this time period, what do you think even the most diehard, like, I know all about the Vikings, what do you think there is to learn um, uh, about, about this period of time? What do you think well, they would well, be surprised to learn?
0: I, you know, I think the life was, I think the life was not as romantic and as, uh, as easy as it's shown in some of the shows. You know, it's it's not Hollywood. It's like like I was just saying, it's uh, it's violent. It's bloody. If you're not being killed in a raid, you're dying in a blood feud with your neighbors or just of disease because the water was so foul with bacteria and everything that they knew nothing about. Life was short. And, uh, you know, it's a romanticized view if you think you want to go back there and live in those times. I guarantee you did not. We were a lot better off the way things are now. Right. Well, I'm curious what,
1: you, what personally, what got you interested in um, the Viking era or, or this particular era?
0: Actually, it started with that first book about Harold Hadrada because he, uh, the Viking king, the Norwegian king, he is actually present through this whole story, but he's off, he's off in uh, Constantinople. He's, he appears at the beginning and then he's off, off screen, off stage and returns at the very end. But he lived such a such an incredible life. He lived the Vikings life. Uh, and I always thought he would be a great subject to write about. And I just never thought in a magazine article would do him any justice. But then when my agent said uh, Vikings are hot right now because of this Viking show on TV, you know, do you know anything about Vikings? And I was like, let me tell you a story. And <laughs> that was what really got me into it. And then, as I say, as I researched that, then it was like, "Wow, while he's over here in Constantinople, there's all this stuff going on here in England that people have completely forgotten, and I just thought it's uh you know Vikings Valhalla I don't they really mess with the story, and I don't know why they had to why they took it upon themselves the It's more like they took all the they took the characters' names and a couple of events and then they just threw them all together, and it's really." The story is already there. I mean, it goes on for decades. It's a soap opera with people appearing and you know disappearing, uh, getting killed, and having kids. And it's a it's a great story in itself. I I I don't know why they had to mess with it.
1: Now, do you you think it's
0: it's entertainment, not a documentary? I guess.
1: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Um, Good point. Um, Now, this is there anything that for for like the Viking age? um, Is is there? Is there more to be explored about it, about it still? Do you think that there's, there's more that still needs to be told about Vikings, or do you think that, that maybe Well, the enough- Viking
0: Age really ended in 1066. That's what they call the end of the Viking Age, when Harold Hadrada finally returned to the stage and invaded up north, and, uh, spoiler alert, got killed. Uh, they really call his death the end of the Viking Age. But I think if you go back further uh, to the time of King Alfred and the Dane Law, I mean, there was certainly a whole nother batch of treachery and uh you know soap opera goings on back then. i yeah, there's definitely another story back then.
1: well, uh Don, this has been a, a really great uh, interview uh, again, this topic is um, it's just, it's i think maybe for me as as an American, not having grown up in like a place that was you know that goes back um, mm-hmm. into like medieval European history, but you know we're still obviously very tied to that. Um, It's just fascinating, and I feel like I don't read enough books about it. Um, I'm curious if you've got. Are you working on anything uh, next? What What else is on the horizon for you?
0: Well, I'm sort of working on a proposal about, uh, uh, and haven't even submitted it yet. So I don't know how much I should say. It could (laughs) be completely rejected. I'm I'm kind of interested in Oliver Cromwell. I think he was such a uh, turning point in history. And I, I'm working on the proposal, but I haven't submitted it yet. And uh, who knows? It may go somewhere. It may not. I don't know.
1: All right. So you're uh, turning turning away from the Viking Age, but turning back to the uh, we started off talking about uh, classical rapier fencing. Right. I believe that yeah. is the age of the musketeers. Yes.
0: Yeah, the 17th century has actually been my uh, primary point of interest. I mean, I, I like the Viking Age, but the 17th century, I'm a member of a reenactment group that does 17th century. And uh, I just find that whole century to be completely fascinating. I mean, on one hand, you've got the it's such high civilization, like you think of Louis uh, Louis the Fourteenth and Versailles, you know that magnificent palace. And then at the same time, in Germany, at the exact same time, a couple hundred miles to the east, you have the Thirty Years War, where Catholics and Protestants are exterminating each other. I mean, they say that some parts of Germany lost half its population. I just think that's a uh, It's such a conundrum. I mean, it's hard to get your head around that. And basically the same thing was going on in England when you see the the English Revolution, the English Civil Wars. There were some uh, battles of extermination going on there as well. And uh, again, I'd like to explore that.
1: Yeah, the Thirty Years' War in particular is is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's because you don't read too much about it, or because it was so convoluted that yeah. you know there's just so much going on.
0: It was so it was so indecisive. It was like those wars in England. It went on for thirty years. the the whole The whole starting point was when the the defenestration of Prague, where they the the Protestants threw the three Catholic uh, officials out of a third story window. The king's officials. Uh, the emperor's officials, actually, and they all three survived, but everybody declares war. 30 years later, the last battle of the war is on a bridge, practically in sight of that uh, of that window that they threw them out of. Hardly anything changed. All those millions of people dead. Uh, it's just,
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> it's,
0: it's, yeah, it's, I say, it's hard to wrap your head around it.
1: One of the themes on the War Books podcast that comes up again and again is how futile Um, most, most wars actually are and how little actually changes uh, as a result of them, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Um, And part of the, what I try to find is I'm not trying to write battle porn or anything like that, but I'm fascinated by why men throw themselves into that. A lot of times knowing that it's going to be futile and they're going to die for no good reason, yeah. Uh, but they go do it anyway. And I, that's, you know, I, I was of the generation that skipped. I, I, I got out of all that. I was at the generation after Vietnam, too old for Vietnam, too young for Grenada and all these other ones are too old for that by then. And, uh, so I was never in the military, but I have the utmost, uh, uh admiration for the guys who are in, uh, and you know, you just hope that their sacrifice isn't in vain.
1: Uh, Don, if uh, readers want to stay in touch with your work, want to see what you're up to and what you're doing, how can people stay in touch with what you're doing?
0: Well, you can visit my website, which is donhallway.com. That's H-O-L-L-W-A-Y.com. But uh, for free sample chapters of Battle for the Island Kingdom and links to buy it on Amazon or the outlet of your choice, you can go to battlefortheislandkingdom.com or just for short, B4TIK.com. And again, sample chapters, free to read.
1: Uh, Don, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, Everybody check out uh, Battle for the Island Kingdom, England's Destiny, 1000 to 1066 by Don Holloway. Go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library. Well, Don, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you for having me.